Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of Guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's episode is Ed Key. Ed is a game designer, he's the founder of uh, Twisted Tree Games and perhaps best known for... Um, Proteus, the uh, incredibly atmospheric and, and wonderful kind of explore up music, relaxation, zen. I mean, it's difficult to describe. You have to go and play it for yourself. It's a, it's a wonderful experience, though. It's very, uh, it's very unique. Uh, as is this wonderful chat with Ed. I think you'll, uh, I think you will enjoy it. I certainly did, and that's all that matters. <laughs> Uh, as always, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com, or it's at checkpointshow on Twitter, or it's checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. If you really like the show, you can uh, help support it on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. If you have the money and the inclination, all donations are very gratefully received and uh, go into making the show as good as it possibly can be. Okay, I mean, I don't have a lot of uh, extra chat this week. I've uh, been spending most of my time playing Nex Machina from Haysmark, which is absolutely amazing. Um, honestly, it's like, oh, I think it's probably one of the best twin stick shooters ever made. It's it's just, it's amazing. It scratches so many of my, my itches. Um, okay, well, I will be back next week. Um, thanks as always for downloading. I hope you enjoy the show. Rate and review on iTunes. You 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 know you know the drill. You know the shtick as well as I do probably. Um, I will be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. Chilling out, <laughs> playing computer games, and then. Uh... Yeah, today I've been catching up on uh, some volunteer work for helping out setting up some fiber broadband. Oh, amazing. Community-driven broadband project to uh, connect all these super remote places with ridiculous one gigabyte both ways fiber. <laughs> so, and so what do you, like, what is your role in that? What do you have to do? Uh, I'm just helping out with mapping, really. Um, okay. Because I'm probably the most kind of computer literate person <laughs> on the project. I mean, apart from the people who are, who actually have the the companies, a company called B4RN, which is broadband for the rural north, and it's all kind of the their headquarters is kind of near here, but it branches out from Manchester, so it all kind of plugs directly into the um, transatlantic cable that that terminates in Manchester. Amazing. And and then it's kind of spreading between towns in this kind of weird like counterintuitive web of things that. Um, and and is it literally fiber or is it like, it's not like the, it, was it Google that had the kind of like broadband satellites that they were sending up for like remote places? Uh, right. No, no, it's literally fiber. Yeah. It's um, like the, the first step is that, well, there's a lot of steps as we discovered, <laughs> but one of the steps is that uh, the community 
either like partly dig themselves and partly funds contractors to dig by buying shares funds contractors to dig trenches along this a very like you know well worked out plan and then they lay plastic duct into it um and then fiber gets kind of blown along this duct and then it there's a, a local exchange that has to be put in there's like a, a big green cabinet that costs ten thousand pounds and then every house kind of gets the same fiber so that's um, amazing yeah that's and, that's not how i'd imagined it that you put down a pipe and then kind of just thread the fiber through it i right, feel like that's yeah. the fiddliest way of doing it surely you just put it all <laughs> in together well i think they i think that's the kind of their innovation that they or this this company or like some academic partnership i don't know really know where it exactly comes from so i can't really give like full credits but mm-hmm. um they it's some technique of uh blowing compressed air down these tubes which are about i think they're Sort of 13 millimeter across or 10 millimeter or something and then the fiber kind of levitates in the middle of the tube and then you just kind of push the fiber along and it, it can go half a kilometer and then every half a kilometer you have to have a little chamber where you, it kind of comes out and you connect it into a junction box and then you blow it on the next half a kilometer and it means that all the digging and laying of this um orange plastic pipe can be done beforehand by people who you know don't have this like yeah high tech equipment and then they come along and obviously they make sure that it's all like good and then and then they blow the fiber along and and it and then install the little routers and things in the houses so that's amazing yeah, i've been i guess i've been doing that since the start of this year just on and off um and is that is that just I, virtue I, of where you are like like where you're kind of relatively rural right yeah uh i mean we're very near the m6 so we're not we're not real we're not miles away from anywhere we're like 15 minutes drive away from the nearest town yeah but we're far enough away that yeah so that's uh the, the reason why it, the reason why it uh works and is feasible and is and is kind of m- massively more cost effective and more likely to happen than bt doing it is because there's nothing there's nothing really incentivizing bt to connect this sort of this kind of like so-called final five yeah, percent of course. Of the uh and because it doesn't have to go through that many roads or like along pavements and things it can kind of go between fields and it relies on the local farmers granting freeway leaves for these ducts and there's just a few odd times where it has to cross roads i think it maybe crosses probably crosses less than 10 times in our parish um and there's there's uh, it's just uh, i've learned a ridiculous amount of boring facts about how to no, I'm saying that, like i love that i love because it it's so kind of community minded as well that that yeah. sort of project i mean that that's one of the things that i certainly like not that i ever grew up anywhere rural but just being in cities for so long you kind of lose track of of that kind of element yeah. of it like even just the fact that i know most of the people who live in my my building is kind of that feels kind of magical to me and that's not usually the case right right i mean it's it's kind of the same here like in the there's this is lots i'm meeting lots of people that i wouldn't have met before yeah so it's not and I, I guess well i did i grew up a couple of miles away from here but um where i live now i don't know that many people so it's not i'm not really you know, it's it's kind of becoming part of the community in a yeah. kind of way. Like, I mean, that's you're maybe... forever going to be the internet guy now <laughs> in that community. Well, yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, this company has like FAQs and it's pretty good. But yeah, uh, it's definitely a danger of that of becoming like <laughs> the one who knows how computers work. Yeah, go to um, tech support. Yeah, I think it's it's got past the worst of that. But hopefully, that doesn't come forget once you actually get connections because it's a bit more official of an ISP. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, okay, so. Formal introduction. Um, Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, If you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? 
Sure. Uh, my name's Ed Key. Uh, I am probably best known for a game called Proteus, which is a sort of uh, weird uh, first-person exploration game with music. Uh, it's very abstract graphics, and the music kind of changes based on where you are and what time of day it is and things. And it's kind of this ambient exploration game. Um, I previously worked at kind of medium-sized studios in the UK, like Codemasters and um, Kuchu and some others and that was kind of during the 90s and then I quit my job there worked at a, a sort of more standard programming job was doing indie stuff on the side and then eventually quit that job to to sort of try and be full-time indie amazing <laughs> um, yeah and then I don't know that's, the, that's no no that's fine that's good that 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 sums that sums up the, the best of it we'll get into the details later um did, did you happen to did you work with um Ollie and Phil who did um Overcooked because I'm sure they worked at Codemasters and Kuju as well. Definitely Kuju. I've I've worked with Anoli and Aphil. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Maybe not <laughs> the same ones. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's funny. You definitely find. You, um. Yeah. You definitely. You, you know. You kind of re meet up with people again and um. Find us. Oh yeah. I worked with you there and. Yeah. I mean, um, I I may be misremembering that as well because I uh, I'm probably... terrible with remembering details of people I've interviewed. But I'm sure it was those guys. Um, well, yeah. let's let's dig back into this past then, Ed. So if you can remember, what was your very first experience of a video game? Uh, I think it was... Uh, well, it was a, a pack of six games that came with the Spectrum uh, Plus 2A that my parents bought me when... Or bought me and my brother, and I, I guess themselves as well. Uh, I think they bought it for us when I was about... Um, <laughs> probably about 10 or something okay uh, and and yeah the, so there's a, a load of games um and i think probably the one that i probably first put in the tape deck might have been oh mummy which is uh uh like an egyptian themed game it's really hard to find by the way if that's if i can hear some typing in the background um i should have looked at it um and it's yeah, so it's like a maze, like a sort of maze game where you're being chased around a pyramid by a mummy, or like a set of mummies, and every okay. all the characters are kind of eight by eight pixels, and they move in eight pixel jumps. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Spectrum hardware, but it's kind of character square graphics rather than sprites. Yeah, and, and you, I think you 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 uncovered square. It's like a grid of squares. Say it's like five by four squares, and you uncover a square by drawing around the edges of the square, and then it reveals what's inside it, which might be. Uh, points or treasure or the exit or it might be another mummy that comes out and chases you so it's like a weird cross between pac-man and um what's that game where you draw around Kicks. where you like enclose yeah that's the one yeah you sort of enclose shapes and, and color them in. Um, you remember that in such extraordinary detail Ed. was this quite a, a <laughs> formative thing for you yeah. yeah it was coming back to me as i was saying it and it had a i mean if you remember that because i think it was actually a spectrum 48k game yeah this is like a pack of 48k games so the spectrum plus two was both had the 48k mode and 128k mode and the 48k mode uh these were all 48k games so i think we had those and then we also had star glider which had both 48k and 128k versions i think that was the one that was kind of came with the computer to show off how amazing the 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 sort of the the upgraded version of the spectrum was i mean this um, seems to be such a a thing for you like was it a big deal at the time or do you just remember these games particularly fondly yeah i think it was a big deal um like i said i, th I think i was 
Probably around 10. 10 and was 11. this kind of relatively trying... rural again as well, like in, in terms of where you are, are in the country? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is, uh, uh, I mean, where I live exactly is um, just east of Kendall in Cumbria. Uh, very near the M6 motorway, so I can. Is that where the mint cake it comes now, from? <laughs> it is. Oh, excellent. Uh, I mean, one of our school, like the kind of, I don't know, it wasn't a school trip, but it was like a, I guess it was a school trip, like a kind of half day thing. It's like go and look around the mint cake factory and <laughs> make some mint cake. Amazing. Uh, so, um, yeah, yeah, it's the mint cake and it's hills. And there was a brand of cheese called K Cheese, which I think still exists, but maybe have dwindled a little bit. Um, but yeah, so uh, where I grew up was outside of town and it's like one and a half miles to the primary school, which was about 36 people's total and then 15 minutes to the to the town where the secondary school was and still is, in fact. And and now, and then I moved all around the country. Well, went to university in Edinburgh and that's where I met my girlfriend. Then we moved around the country quite a lot, mostly to do with the job instability and yeah. games years. Um, and then... It, uh, after many different steps and iterations of that, uh, we moved back up here. Um, uh, first to West Cumbria, which is quite near the coast, and is is it quite a really fierce rivalry but, between East and West Cumbria? Uh, not really. They're okay. West, they're quite different. <laughs> I like the sound of it. Um, the the probably is if <laughs> you can probably find that within some farming some <laughs> circles. But, Do they both lay claim um, to candle and the mint cake? <laughs> no, no, the Kendall's division. More, more, yeah, Kendall's Westmoreland, which is actually East Cumbria. And it's <laughs> the old county, so the, the Cum- Cumbria now is like a conglomeration of three counties. Um, no, West Cumbria is, uh, is basically Sellafield and BAE and lots of remote, very run-down villages because it's kind of a mix of ex-mining. Sellafield is where there was the big disaster, right? Was there a big disaster? Um, or like a leak or something, a radiation leak? I always remember that being like a joke in school, like along with Chernobyl. <laughs> Uh, the probably, probably in extraordinarily poor C-scale. taste. I think maybe C scale was the there was a fire. I'm gonna have to. Well, maybe I won't Google it. I'll just rely on my memory and just tell you some nonsense. Uh, I think one of the early there was an early nuclear accident. I think it was at C scale, which is next to Sellafield. But Sellafield's this kind of huge sprawling complex now. Um, I think generally it's it's one of these places that everyone goes. Oh, Sellafield. Yeah, don't don't <laughs> live too close to there. Yeah. I, I didn't. I didn't expect to get into this sort of deep uh, <laughs> northern England uh, chat. But let's let's go back to the video games. So the, the yeah, spectrum. Yeah. Like, why why did your parents buy it for you? Was it just was it something you were petitioning for and aware of, or was it just like here's a cool Ooh, gift you, for the kids? Uh, you, you cut out a little bit, but I think I, I got the gist of what you're saying. Okay. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it was. I I, I think. I mean, the reason, like, I was very much a home computer child rather than a console child growing up. Um, and, like, the first console I ever owned was, like, a PS2 or something, like, obviously way later on than that. Um, but, yeah, I think it was bought that, I, I think my, I guess my dad probably wanted to tinker around with it a little bit, but I think it was really bought as a kind of educational, improving thing. And, you know, this is, I, I guess it's kind of, um foresightful that isn't really a word but you know foresightful of them to to kind of realize that computers were kind of up and coming and yeah and it was 
for children to learn to use them and stuff. So was it something you were aware of though? Like, or was it just like, oh my god, look at this! <laughs> what look at what this can do? Actually, that wasn't my first computer. My first computer was the ZX eighty one, which was um, <laughs> it's really showing how old I am. Um, although I don't think I was quite in nineteen eighty one, um, but that was I don't that we never really had any games on that. It was more just like tinkering around with basic, trying to write programs until the memory ran out. And That's amazing. How how did you hold uh, off? I was hold off games. Yeah, how could you have a ZX that you want to not get games until you got like, oh, the upgraded version? I think I didn't really understand that they existed. <laughs> okay. Uh, actually, no, I, was, I don't think it really occurred to to me or to us to buy um, package games, like, you know, games off a shelf in a computer shop. But I think we did, there were like type-in magazines, and probably some of those things were... Uh, you know, like listings for games that you type in, like um, sort of Pong-like things or stuff like that. So it might be one of the, you know, I don't know, we're kind of really like going into the, the mists of time. Um, but when you got this first so, pack of games, that kind of sold you on them. That was like a brand new thing. Yeah, I think that must have come free with the computer. And then, and then like I say, for some reason, uh, we also got Star Glider, which is a kind of, like the you know triple a game of its day um and yeah as an anecdote related to that guess <laughs> we're, no, talking, we're talking about people when you you know the games industry being a small place and meeting people that worked on things uh, one of the companies that i worked at uh one of the original programmers of the spectrum port of starglider was um was brought in as a a freelancer on the project um and i can't remember which company that was um, no, I can't remember what, what studio that was. Anyway, uh, really nice guy called Graham, and we, there was like when I realised it was yeah that's what he worked on. We had some good conversations that were way over my head in terms of uh, technical detail about how they managed to squeeze like three sound channels out of this out of the super limited hardware and how the Spectrum version had a whole extra I think it had extra levels in it. And it had like a victory parade at the end where I mean, if you remember Starglider was it was vector graphics and you're flying around on the surface of a planet trying to defeat some kind of aliens or some kind of like imperial menace um and all the enemies are kind of vectorized turrets and and like flying like plane bird-like planes with flapping wings and walkers and stuff and at the end they had a um a, a closing sequence where um all the enemies kind of paraded in front of you and surrendered and it was this kind of elaborate re- reuse of the same game assets but um like an elaborate sequence as a reward uh and because the original developer of the i think maybe it's c64 or amiga the, the original version okay um the original developer uh didn't have time to implement that like it was in the design document but they didn't have time to implement that in the originals they despite having put this in the spectrum port they had to take it back out again um so that it didn't show the original app. um and not, not that I would have ever finished Starglider because I think I got to the <laughs> once. It was extremely hard. But were you kind of like hooked in with that though? Like, you know, were you then seeking out even more games? Like, because I'm curious, being in a, a small community, like, would there have been like tape trading and stuff or was it just oh, totally. like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very much so. I mean, and that was not, probably not a primary school. I think this must have been like around the cusp of primary and secondary school so around when I was 10 or 11 um but definitely yeah people would trade 
uh, duplicated tapes. And uh, I remember magazine covered us, like your Sinclair and Sinclair user, Spectrum user, Sinclair user, covered a, cover tapes rather. It used to be amazing because they used to quite often have like three complete games on each side of the tape. Um, so even, you know, even if, even without like steeping to illegal activity, you would still be able to kind of get quite a good stash of games just from these, uh, you know, cover tapes. And were you sort of seeking them out on purpose? Like, were you kind of, was yeah. the games quickly become like your thing? Yeah, yeah. I, I like started buying Your Sinclair and I can't remember which one was, I, th- I feel like Your Sinclair was the one I settled on, but Sinclair user and Your Sinclair. Um, and, and yeah, like ravenously, you know, devouring the next month's cover tape and finding out you know, going through the three things that were on it and finding the kind of best one and going back to that one over and over and over again. Um, yeah, so I guess, I, I, I mean, I couldn't say if it was like quickly getting into that stuff, but definitely that was, uh, yeah, that was my, uh, what's the word? <laughs> Cut this out. <laughs> um, yeah, just... Yeah, discovering games as a, a thing, a thing like a hobby, a thing to do, like a, a like a form of entertainment that yeah. was really already kind of really rich and um, varied and yeah, full of like amazing discoveries. Like I remember one of the, like our favorite uh, between me and some friends, our favorite game that we discovered off cover desk was probably Chaos by Julian Gollop, who's now oh amazing. He did a new version of that, and he's doing a new version of um, XCOM. Oh, you know, a spiritual, spiritual sequel to XCOM. Um, and yeah, Chaos is amazing. Just the, the kind of this like eight-way turn-based battle of wizards where you summon creatures and send them off to fight the other wizards. And yeah, this brilliant... It's had this really nice like multi-stage thing. So everyone chose the spell they were going to cast. And I don't think I've ever... I don't, I don't think I know much about Chaos. I always associate Julian Gollop with just with XCOM. I need to look right, it up. Right, right. Yeah, I think Chaos and Rebel Star were the first ones he made. Rebel Star was like a close to XCOM, like sci-fi squad based thing. Yeah. Um, and then chaos was um, like, yeah, wizards and, and it was just a single screen and you could choose two to eight wizards and you could choose whether they were, each one of them was computer controlled or human controlled. Uh, and if it was eight, they would be like arranged in a ring around the outside and, and you get dealt like a, it's like, it's very kind of card, like card gamey, okay. computer assisted card game kind of thing. Um, did you form kind of like friendship groups around games then as you as you grew up? Like, did you have your pals that you always play games with? Yeah. Uh, so there's probably about like four or five of us um, in school that was sort of the main, I don't know, that was just like our main sort of yeah. group of friends. There's probably other little like overlapping groups as well, but um, that's the, the main group I remember. But then even like family friends, some of the, some family friends who were like friends of my parents who lived miles away their kids also had spectrum so i remember trading tapes with them but but i remember this this main group was playing chaos and um like lying on the floor literally with this spectrum on the carpet little the, the classic the older version the 48k rubber key thing with a you know plugged into the tv and playing <laughs> games of chaos it's a beautiful image um, um it's, it's interesting though that you started with like you started doing coding before you necessarily sort of got to games so did that kind of how did that affect how you played them like were you like oh my god how is this possible like did that immediately kind of ignite the interest in kind of pulling them apart and seeing how they worked 
a little bit, but I think I never really, um, I never progressed beyond basic on the spectrum. Um, like I know that, and I know loads of, loads of games once, like if you want to do sprites on the spectrum, you have to know machine code and you have to write your own machine code routines to, to kind of move pixels around. And, and to this day, I have no idea how that works. Yeah. Um, but I did, um, I guess there's some games like Chaos, you could just about see how most of that works, but I suspect that was a lot of machine code too. Um, yeah, it was rare to find. It, yeah, it's kind of, so like most most games, um, <laughs> the I never thought I'd get this far into detail of like talking about spectrum tape loading. Process, no, 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 but, it's good, it's good. But, but, you know, when you put in a tape, it kind of has these stripy borders and it, like a program colon something will flash up and, and then it will, and then like there's an early point where it looks the same as games that you would like write yourself and save yourself to disc. Yeah. But then pretty soon, you know, 99, like any, any kind of game worth its salt would immediately, once it loads its loading screen, it would like change into some other loader where the colors are different in the border and, or it might be like the really fancy ones had like a little countdown in the screen or something else going on. And, and then it kind of progressed. And then it was like, this is just now magic to me and I don't know any, what any of this is. Um, but it's really funny sometimes when, like if it failed, if the tape failed just after that first bit of loading, it would sometimes dump you back to the listing of this like sort of basic, like as in like capital letters, basic, basic written, uh, like bootstrapping program that does the first bit of the loading. And sometimes that was quite big and you'd like see a load of messages in the code and you'd like, you'd get like a little glimpse into it. But, but it was never really anything you could meaningfully edit. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I just carried on like tinkering with stuff in in basic and doing stuff with this kind of like that Oh Mummy game I was talking about with the yeah. eight characters and you know getting some graph paper and like drawing the light by eight squares and then coloring stuff in and then you there was you, you had to convert it to binary from like each line of this character was a binary byte and you had to convert that to to a you know decimal number and then put that in and you could you could make your own. That was the kind of the 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 sort of sub machine code sub yeah. sprite way of making your own graphics um, crazy intensive like time intensive like to think about like doing that and making yeah. games in that fashion it's just it's insane yeah, yeah. I mean, and they're also very limited in size because and limited in functionality too because basic doesn't didn't really have functions so yeah you kind of be more bound by um like, you know, you couldn't, there was a limit to how much time you could spend making something because there was a limit to what you could make without it kind of collapsing under its own weight. So, and how did um, that yeah, kind of, how, how did your relationship kind of change then as you, as you got older? Like, were you always in? Like, were you just getting the, the latest computers? Uh, no, uh, I mean, again, uh, the next one was an Amiga 500 Plus. Um, and, guess uh how old would it have been 16 or something maybe um and again that was that was um i guess we you know i don't think i don't think we were following every iteration of of um you know computer hardware but no no just whatever got, the next yeah. computer would be yeah it got to a point where it was like maybe you want to use a word processor and yeah i don't know you know do your homework on a word processor or an art package 
whatever um, excuse so, you need to get a better computer yeah, to get more games yeah, like. yeah and i can't remember if i actually like deployed those excuses oh i really you know i really need to be able to use like 16 colors in my homework or something or 32 colors um yeah so it's another just sudden vivid sense memory of the thermal printer that plugged into the back of the spectrum which printed onto this like silver aluminium coated toilet roll kind of thing and smelt like burning like it part printed with like a little uh, spark that sounds amazing I've yeah, never okay, heard of such a thing like that. Like uh, I never yeah, had home computers, so I'm I'm, right. I'm always hearing about this third hand. I grew up on consoles, so right, right, right. It's yeah. always fascinating to hear these um, things. Um, I'm I'm curious, like because of where you are and kind of of the of the games you've made, like these kind of experiential things, and and very much to do with kind of exploration and kind of mm. walking and discovering in that sense. Like because mm. you were kind of rural, was that a part of your childhood as well yeah definitely yeah so i mean also part of my childhood was like get off the computer and go outside you know? yeah but like mm. you were kind of in the country essentially you could go off yeah, and ramble yeah, yeah. and wander uh, yeah and there's there's i mean particular nice bit of countryside kind of on the hill like a bit further up from my parents house um where our, our water my parents water supply still comes from it's like a little like a mini reservoir that serves several properties um, and that was a kind of classic walk to kind of walk up there and walk around this little reservoir and back down again. And um, and my parents always had this trick when, well, not, not always, that's an exaggeration, but quite often had a trick, which is to, to claim there was a chocolate biscuit tree that grew up there. And we would go there and my dad would like run ahead and hang some chocolate biscuits on a tree. And, uh, you know, it's... Oh, that is uh, super cute. Video game collectibles or <laughs> like extrinsic <laughs> rewards going on there. Um that, that, yeah, like when like, you said yeah, that I mean, first, I just thought they'd be just tricking you and saying like, oh, oh surprise, no, there no. is no, no, they actually went to the effort of doing it, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. is, that is, that is beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was probably like before, you know, this, I was quite young. You're like 20 like, then, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. A little bit younger. 19 or something. No, um, I, I find that really interesting because I, I spoke to um, Harrison Pink a, a few episodes ago and like, I was just so interested because he grew up in Bermuda, which is like, what? You, you grew up in Bermuda. You grew up in this amazing <laughs> tropical island. And, you know, why would you play games almost? And I thought it was really interesting that one of his favorite games pretty much ever is uh, Legend of Zelda Wind Waker because it reminded him of growing up yeah. on a bunch of islands. It's, it's that. Yeah. And I, just, I found that really interesting that he would have this real life experience and yet would kind of love the the video game version of it just as much kind of thing so did you have anything yeah. like that yeah yeah i mean the, the one that i mostly like most remember um is is kind of post amiga or, or like maybe it was around the same time as we had an amiga at some point i guess we needed something like a more capable computer for for kind of well my dad you know my parents wanted one that was a bit more like a business computer yeah uh, a, a 486 of some sort um and then again, you know, once you know, once there's a new computer, there's new games, right? Absolutely. Um, so one of the games that I remember on that was uh, Ultima Seven, I think. Yeah, Ultima Seven: The Black Gate. And I think it was kind of, it was probably kind of an oldish game at the time, even because I remember it running like slightly too fast on that computer, and that was like a hundred megahertz, four eight six. Um, but that uh, is that was the first and kind of the only ultimate game that i played for any real length of time but it's the, and it's the first one i ever played and that came with you know the, the fold out paper map that you you know pull out the box and fold yeah, out yeah, and it's yeah. got 
it's got like a big town where you start off and, and it's got this kind of big main island lots of little islands and that was just yeah incredibly captivating to to look at the map and imagine what was there and then like go to that place and find like how how that place kind of really is in the game versus how it's represented on paper and i think also the map everything was written in runes so the town names were not immediately obvious what they were because and then you'd have to kind of translate you know if you saw something like the the shadow isle or something it would probably be written in runes so yeah. you'd have to go to a few towns to work out what runes what that actually meant um and i remember i mean this is like i mean particularly like strong memory that feels like maybe it was some kind of subconscious seed of proteus was uh playing wandering around the the forest in this game in ultima um kind of in between towns you could get really lost in this forest and find weird ruins and like strange uh like forks in the road and and you would take one and then never find the junction again so you'd never find what, what was that what was down the other fork yeah um, and listening to uh, Brian Eno's uh, Shoot Off Assembly, which is an album, I think it's a com- compilation album, but uh, just beautiful, lush, ambient things, um, which is, again, you know, in the fine tradition of uh, illegal <laughs> duplication, was taped off a, a CD from the library, um, from the public library. Yeah. Uh, and I played that so much with that, because I think uh, the PC didn't have a sound card. I think it. It just, you know, only had like could only make beeps because it wasn't really bought for games. So it, yeah, it had kind of. So you're making it. your own soundtracks, basically. Yeah, and I think that was, that was the only album I ever played ever played whilst playing that game. I suppose and that's I suitable, had, suitably video gamey. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's kind of completely abstract and and it's just it's so firmly embedded in my memory that now when I when I listen to that album on MP3, uh, it's there's a it's like 59 seconds into track seven or something where the where the tape ended where the you know where side a of this tape ended yeah <laughs> so this music there's this particular track which is kind of uh, i think it's called riverside and it has this kind of you know this washing kind of tape tape loop sounds and there's just a bit where my brain kind of hiccups every time i listen to it because i'm expecting it to cut off <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing uh, i'm really curious like about just the linking it back to, to, to Proteus like that mm. because that is it's procedurally generated right so it's, it's kind of different every time yeah. you do that yeah. so like was there a sort of uh, a thought at the beginning of that to, to make it as a space and like kind of map it out and figure out how to explore it uh not I, I think or was it always a procedural thing was, yeah initially it was always procedural and and I think and that I mean like going back to kind of historical stuff now is um I think that probably has its roots in playing around with a, a program called the Vista on the Amiga, which was a landscape generator that, you know, if you ran it at the, the high detail, it would take 45 minutes to generate a frame. Um, but I think that's where I kind of got the procedural landscape bug from. Um, but oh, we did talk, because David, who, so Proteus' main collaborator on that was David Kanega, who's a musician in America yeah, and, and game maker and kind of composer um i don't know how it's not kind of composer he is a composer <laughs> <laughs> that's not me slighting his composition abilities that's just my manner of speaking um uh yeah you know because we made a kind of physical package edition of that and one of the ideas was to make a cloth map and and to have perhaps have like the seed 
like a fix because you know you can always put a, a fixed seed into the random number generator into the random generator rather and it will generate the same thing every time so i think we were thinking like could we like take one map one generate one island like choose one that's like particularly nice and interesting and then somehow print a map of that or like you know extract the the map data from the game print that and then draw a hand version of that yeah and, uh, and that would have been really nice but it was just um this this making this physical version overran so long that we were just like this is really <laughs> let's just get it out let's just get it out. <laughs> <laughs> this is, i mean we kind of like had in theory this is how we would make this thing this like ridiculous old style cloth map um but then it's also like finding yeah who would print cloth maps because we've yeah. a couple hundred of them so yeah anyway so it could have happened but it was like a it was like a post you know it's a, a, a almost retrospective yeah thing where it's like oh what about cloth maps they're cool um could do it on the the ps5 reissue or something right, right. <laughs> um so so when did like you talk about sort of playing around with this um landscape generator on the amiga like when when did you start thinking about making games as a thing you could probably do like did that seem an achievable goal to you no not really i mean at, at that time so this is sixth form i guess um at that point i was still making things in on the amiga but making it still using a uh, version of base version of basic called amos which um can't remember exactly how that works but that did that did let you do sprites and rotate things and um uh, but it was you know i was still not graduating onto anything like kind of professional game yeah. development tools um and so you know lots of all the kind of release games just seemed like kind of magic um and then i think just before university i found a book called artificial life by uh stephen levy and that is just a not really to do with game development but it's about um like flocking and uh swarms of robots and like digital like i guess we would still call it artificial life but i mean it's one of it's like the game of life thing where they create yeah that's little... it yeah right yeah the the uh, conway's game of life so where it where it has the, it's the same guy yeah. cells oh, no, it's different out. Guy. Uh, no different different author but that that was definitely mentioned so it's a right, okay. like behavior from that and yeah you i mean you're on the you're, yeah, you're in the right area um and then i think even when i was i don't know it was like a weird slow onset thing that maybe i just didn't understand how how you could ever like become someone who made these games so yeah when I, I think that that book influenced me on choosing my university subject, which was artificial intelligence and computer science, um, and I ended up going to Edinburgh to do that. And but then, yeah, towards the end of university, I was still, you know, you start kind of doing the careers milk round thing, um, and I was just going to lots of kind of recruitment days at just tedious places. <laughs> <laughs> and then at some point i noticed that there was games jobs and then i applied to i applied to a job as a junior programmer at codemasters in leamington or near leamington um so i did in the end i went straight from university to uh game development but it was like a really last minute thing when i realized that that was a possibility basically and did like did you have i guess like how am I going to phrase this question? Like, before you went to go and work in video games, like, did you have an idea of games as something 
maybe like beyond just the commercial fun thing like did you have ideas of games as more of a like uh, an artistic endeavor or was it because I, I don't think that came until maybe a bit later mm. and people started becoming a bit more evangelical about it even though there were lots of really interesting um sort of uh experimental games like even on like the the spectrum and stuff like were you aware of that kind of uh, area of games or were you just whatever i play the the fun new ones Hmm. I mean, I was aware of that as a dimension of them, for sure. Like, um, like, would you have been evangelical about, like, oh, this, these are games, these are really important? Or was it just like, oh, cool, I like games, uh, <laughs> I can get a job in games? Yeah, not... Yeah, not in that same sense. I know what you mean, that kind of uh, railing against Roger Ebert kind of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that didn't really exist. But I remember... I definitely remember, you know, you you'd pick up an odd game and just think, wow, this is really strange and really beautiful. Like, um, there's a game that a friend of mine's hugely obsessed with called Darker, which is uh, from like 486 VGA PC days. And it's this flight simulator and it's all kind of this beautiful pink palette and it's got a kind of melancholy feel to it, but it's like a sci-fi um, aerial dogfighting kind of simulator. Um, but that, you could, you know, you could see people starting to do things that were. It doesn't sound, you know, it doesn't sound like like a really artistic, aesthetic game, but just that it was such kind of subdued colours and had this really odd esoteric kind of atmosphere. Yeah. Actually, even before that, like Captain Blood on the Spectrum, like you're saying, you know, Spectrum had like a lot of a lot of weird stuff on it. Um, but I remember Captain Blood being one of those first games that you're just kind of playing it and you think, what. Well, what's going on here it's just like uh, just a what world have i found myself in yeah Uh, you know with the the claw the claw-like hand pressing these glyphs and launching like a little fish to land on a no that's insane and meet an alien and talk to him in this graphical language and um so yeah these these things exist you know I i would i would be kind of uh excited to see them you know it's definitely like I think it, again, like maybe it ties in with like other forms as well, like you know, staying up late and and watching weird films come on Channel Four at night. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that. what I'm like, I, I, I've got a better way of framing the question here. I've just, oh, okay. I just figured out. <laughs> um, like, I guess what I'm thinking is like, when you when you get this job and you go and work for for Codemasters, do you, in your head is it just a job where you do the work they ask you to do, or do you see it as an opportunity to kind of uh, be creative as a creative endeavor? Do you know? Um, yeah like certainly it was exciting to be working on games and knowing that you're working on a thing that other people would enjoy and that you would also you know even though it wasn't it was a racing game so it wasn't particularly a genre that I played but it was you know you're making something where you type in code and you ran it and it appeared on screen and it was interactive and yeah. rather than just kind of writing a you know a website or something um but it, uh, oh yeah, sorry. The other part of that was yeah, scope for creativity. That it wasn't. I mean, I was just a you know a programmer on a team of thirty or so people, and there's I don't know like seven of those with programmers or something. But yeah, it wasn't. There wasn't a lot of creative freedom to choose what you did, but um, there was little bits, and and it was more of a kind of. 
exciting teamwork problem solving yeah. kind of environment um but was your your motivation it was just i need to get a job and i get to work in games and that'll be fun you weren't necessarily kind of itching to to make things necessarily uh yeah I, I, at that point it didn't occur to me to make things on my own um and also you know lots of long hours and crunch and things so it wasn't really you know it wasn't really an option to make things no. make any things um but no, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I didn't go into it thinking I'm um, advancing the the future of a medium or something. It was just, this is a cool game. This is the, or this, yeah, this is the game that we're making because that's what the publisher wants. Or that's, you yeah, know, that's the, yeah, that's the kind of. That's what they have to make. Should, that's what that's the, the job thing, is. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's no, there's no kind of. I totally get that. The, the 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 reason I'm asking is just because of what you've gone on to do. Like you've gone on to make some really interesting, sort of experiential, like different types of games. So did that just kind of build over time the kind of desire to do that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that was, um, I mean, I went through several games companies, um, kind of during the that was like starting in '99 and then at the tail end of '99 and then through the the 2000s um, and. Was they it good? were all, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of. I mean, it's 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 a funny thing because you end up in very uh, like tightly knit groups of people where you're learning a lot from each other and you're working quite closely together over over long periods. And um, yeah, I guess I was lucky to be on on pretty good teams. Uh, and making lots of friends, you know, making friends on the job. So yeah. it wasn't just, you know, going to a desk and working your own and go home. It was quite an intense environment, but also that, you know, that was kind of a flip side of it being an environment where you quite had to do kind of ridiculous overtime and sleep under a desk and things. Um, and I think that that sort of mid 2000s period was fairly, uh, fairly tumultuous for the UK games industry. So there's a lot of studios that folded and a lot of publishers like pulling the plug on projects. Um, so, you know, or studios either folding or being under such pressure that they became unpleasant places to work. Yeah. Um, but it was, yeah, it was good. I mean, I think in retrospect, I would have maybe done that for half the time that I did do it. Okay. Try, tried to discover making indie games earlier um, because they were definitely around like Armadillo Run was one of the first ones I remember um, and then things like uh, I think one of the one of the games that was most influential in in convincing me that it was like a neat viable thing that you could do is Knit which is spelled K-N K-N-Y-T-T which is by uh, Niflas or Niklas Negren um, and that's this really nice, neat, uh, platformer, which is very, like there are some enemies in it, but it's mostly an exploration platformer and there's lots of different sections of this world. You, you basically, uh, you get kidnapped by an alien and then you crash land on this planet. Okay. You're, this, you're a tiny little like eight pixel high sprite and, and you need to find the, the 12 missing pieces of this guy's spaceship and then bring them back to him and then you fly off and, and that's it's just a kind of 
go around the world into the like corners of this world and find a part of a spaceship and then once you've got eight you go back to this the spaceship um but it and it has a beautiful atmosphere it has really beautiful music that is very like minimalistically and sensitively done um so i think and i can't remember that came out but I, I feel like I mean, there are probably other games. Yeah, I was definitely like aware of other indie games, but for some reason that one was somehow cut, like crystallized something for me. Um, I mean, given how oh, like crazy your work schedule was, like, did you get uh, an opportunity to play many games during this period? Yeah. Um, hmm. And yeah, if so, probably, like, what, uh, what 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 ones stand out here? If you don't have any, that's absolutely fine. Uh, probably, I mean, yeah, like Pikmin on the GameCube is another really beautiful one. Um, i trying to think of... I guess like Ico and Shadow of the Colossus were around that time. Yeah. Um, the original, yeah, the, the, the first ones, first releases of those on PS2. Um, but like, I, I'm curious about... Yeah, like, like Shogun. Also because of that kind of... Because you're doing so much work, like what... Like, did games sort of serve a, a different function for you? Like, was it purely just a way to to relax, or not? Like, was it even a bit of a busman's holiday at times? Like, oh, I can't face playing any games. I've been working on games all day. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not. I, maybe it's evenings that I can't remember so well. But um, I mean, it definitely, we were definitely still into games. And, you know, me and people that I work with were still into playing games. Um, and I don't know if that's just sort of an indictment of our social lives <laughs> <You know? laughs> or i mean also not having a family is, is the other thing yeah not having kids and not having to come over and which obviously you know, some people that's working with did have kids and that's it's kind of pretty different situation you always find time um yeah right right uh so oh yeah right the other i guess the other gaming stuff around that time was playing half-life and counter-strike at work at lunch times um and just you know everyone like usually flexible lunch times between 12 and 2 but it's like okay everyone eat your sandwiches at one o'clock and then load up the counter-strike server and there was it was always playing local you know lan lan uh, multiplayer yeah so rather than and i never really got into playing online internet multiplayer at all it was just kind of the 10 or so people that were into counter-strike or half-life deathmatch um just yeah absolutely caning that every every lunchtime <laughs> every day uh again you know maybe it would have been healthier to to get up and go for a walk <laughs> um uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna break off for a second and do some relatively quick fire questions ed and we'll sure. come back to some games in a bit so um ed if you had to play a game with death for your own mortal soul uh, what game are you best at uh I'm pretty good at Stellaris these days. Yeah? That's like a 4X strategy game thing. Is that um, competitive? Can you be good at that? I suppose you can. <laughs> yeah, I think it's... Oh, of course you can, because you can play like uh, multiplayer save and stuff. Yeah. Maybe Death is an AI, though. You know, it's like the... That is true. <laughs> I'm just trying to wheedle my way out of this now. Uh, uh, no, that's fine. Like... Maybe that, that's really struck a goal with me. That maybe death is an AI. I don't know why. It's just a really striking sentence. Um, uh, are you are you a competitive person? Have you ever had any kind of uh, long-standing um, 
competitive matches with people or high score battles? I think only like that that period of playing Counter Strike and Half Life at lunchtimes in in game studios. That was my that's my competitive period in games. Maybe also playing uh, Johan Sebastian Joust. I don't ah, know. Okay, you might know that. You might know that from events. You know, the move controller thing where you jostle people. Um, I get quite competitive at that. Um, but most of the time, yeah, I'm not really. Uh, maybe it's getting old as well. Like I, I saw some graph recently where it says your your urge to be competitive sort of drops off in your mid thirties. So I'm just like, yes, I'll just conform to that graph. And, yeah, no, that is that. Oh, well, I don't, I don't know if that is true. I mean, maybe it is. Like I, I was always, I've never like competitive, competitive, like you know, versus games. But I've always been a bit of a a kind of high score chaser. Like that, I get really I, obsessed with. Only if I can do it, though. If I could, if there's no chance of me doing it, I'm not interested. But if, yeah. if I could potentially be the best, I will like go nuts. Stuff like right. rhythm, rhythm games in particular, for some reason, I have uh, a real, yeah. I get real <laughs> obsessive about rhythm games. Yeah, I mean, for me, oh, I think there's a little blip there. Um, no, for me, it's yeah, not really high score at all, but much more like finding a particular game that local friends are into and just getting massively into it like Tekken at university there's another one like Tekken 3 um but yeah all these games I'm, I'm no longer <laughs> enough to, to play against death so I feel I feel like I already know the answer to this Ed but um if you are prone to such things what is your worst rage quit <laughs> uh I, I get like again because I don't play multiplayer games. I don't have that kind of online rage quit. But, but, I quite often like I, I, what I really hate is when games don't implement Alt F four on on Windows. You know, Alt F four. <laughs> it's not actually an operating system thing. It's the thing you have to specifically implement. But I love the ability to just just be like playing a you know if you're playing a roguelike or a big strategy game or something, then it's just something's gone a bit wrong and it's like. I can't even. I'm not even going back to the menu. <laughs> like, just Alt F4 and just get out of it immediately. Oh man! Um, if a game has driven you to that point and then it doesn't support it, that must be like laptop yes. out of the room, basically. I remember. I mean, I really love uh, Nuclear Throne. Yeah. Um, and I played a lot of that through the through the early access, and I never got that good at you know. I can never. I think Little Hunter, Little Hunter, Little Hunter. Uh, I could never beat that guy, but. Um, which is like as far as into the game, but yeah, that game. Oh, just the Alt F4 thing, I guess, is that that game through its development, like occasionally a certain version wouldn't support Alt F4, <laughs> so I would, I would, you know, get killed on level one or something, and be like, oh fuck this, <laughs> trying to Alt F4 and it wouldn't let me quit. I'm just like, oh, don't let me look at the words "game over" for five seconds. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Um, that's good. Given you know the the range of emotions video games are potentially able to uh, to to give us, um, Ed, what games have really made you laugh? Mm, I think it's probably the classic, like classic sort of LucasArts things. Maybe Grim Fandango. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's the whole. I mean, I, I think I'm thinking of earlier checkpoint episodes now with like people talking about comedy games and how yeah. it's. Oh, it's so Strange. tricky. It's so tricky. Yeah, and it's an interesting one. Um, a different podcast, but I was hearing Zoe Quinn talk about this with, um, like, talk about the difference between kind of slapstick games, where something emerges out of the mechanics of it, and 
written comedy games, or maybe it's Carlos. There's there's definitely some been some good discussion about this that I've heard at some point. Um, but I can't remember which podcast it was on. Um, yeah, yeah, for for, for like uh, I don't know really. I mean, I guess there's other hilarious games like Battlefield Night Forty Two, um, and probably all the battlefields really. But playing that with a bunch of people and getting a bomber and getting everyone to kind of lie down and go prone on the wings of this bomber and then fly this bomber around. And the other team would be expecting you to to play normally and, and you know, come and capture some... <laughs> and you're a human airplane. And, yeah, you're, you're flying this kind of big, slow, wobbly bomber with a load of people going prone <laughs> on the wings and throwing grenades off it or something. I mean, that was probably that and, and like, Half-Life Deathmatch, um, putting trip mines. This is, maybe this, this is probably more funnier than <laughs> to me than... Uh, than uh, Grim Fandango, that was amazing. Um, it's, yeah, look, if you remember, Half Life had uh, laser trip mines. Yeah. And it had demolition packs as well. You could throw them down and press a, and then like right click to detonate them or something. Um, but the original Half Life Deathmatch was just a load of a load of maps, like some pretty pretty nicely interestingly laid up maps with big towers and tunnels and ladders and things. But that was like it was like a like a kind of improv game of spy versus spy where the most fun, like it was fine to, you know, shoot someone with a machine gun, you know, fair enough, you get a point, but yeah. it was always funnier to, to kind of massively trap an area and then run and hide at the top of a tower and then watch people come out and then watch them fall victim to your <laughs> explosives. Um, that's probably caused the most, uh, lols. That is amazing. Um, I, I forgot to ask this one. Um, Ed as a game ever kind of, uh, overtaken your life to the point where you've had to uninstall it and remove it from your system. Mm. Not one that you weren't working on, obviously. Yeah, I was going to say it's like you know, my current one that I'm trying to make. Um, Mountain Blade, maybe Mountain Blade Warband. Um, it's like I've never maybe. played Mountain Blade, and it's one of those games that you hear about all the time as being this like really popular game was like, i don't know anyone that plays mate and blade it just looks ridiculous to me <laughs> right, right. is it good yeah uh i mean the, the, i think sequels coming out fairly soon mate and blade 2 but um yeah really nice kind of sandboxy kind of thing and, and really good like almost flight simulator-ish combat like horseback combat Horse, horseback combat is that right flight simulator-ish like horseback combat Horse, do i mean horseback combat doesn't sound like a right <laughs> no 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 that, I, I know what you mean but just I, I'm, I'm not sure how <laughs> that uh, relates to the flight simulator just that you're kind of swooping around between people and maybe shooting arrows or trying to line up a lance with the other person and trying oh, to okay, okay. avoid their shield I mean, obviously you know that those things aren't quite the same but it feels like dogfighting and it feels very fluid and um kind of different to a lot of uh games that you know it's, it's not like a game where you you just kind of block and then hit and block and hit You're yeah more kind of it's lots of like around. small emotions to aid the big emotion yeah or it's more dynamic and flowing between like i don't know your position on the battlefield um so that i like that is one of the games where i've absolutely just played hundreds of hours of it um i do, i know a friend who had to like physically destroy his computer because of mountain blade <laughs> <laughs> so so i might be slightly stealing his his choice for that oh um, man 
Yeah, you literally check that out. That's one of those <laughs> weird games that's like a perennial thing that I just have no knowledge of whatsoever. Right. I mean, Mountain Blade Warband is the one to check out, I think. There's a few different versions, but Mountain Blade Warband is like a a 1.5. And then there's With Fire and Sword, which is a different setting, like a Napoleonic setting. But that's that's kind of weirder and not as good, I think. That's amazing. Um, well, let, let's go back to where you were then. So what, you, you talked about playing Knit and that convinced you, oh, maybe I could do this. So what, what actually pushed you over the edge to be like, I'm going to go make my own games? Uh, yeah, well, it was kind of kind of partly circumstance that I was working at Kuju in London, and uh, I think we just finished Battalion Wars One, and we just started Battalion Wars Two, um, and that was a game that we were working on. Like we knew there was going to be a, a, a follow up console, like a new console after the GameCube, but we didn't know what it was going to be. So we were kind of working on this game that we knew was going to be in the, the early releases, but we didn't know what the controller was going to be. So it was a, it was a fun time. Um, and we didn't know what the name was going to be either, so we so this is a real sidetrack. But yeah, the the name we got a new announced halfway through developing it, and everyone was just kind of in utter utter disbelief that this was the name of a console. <laughs> um, but so around this time, uh, my girlfriend had just retrained uh, to be a lawyer, and she just wanted to do she she needed to do um, her training contract, which is like after you've qualified, you have to do this like couple of years of being a trainee solicitor before you can become an actual solicitor. Uh, and the place she wanted to, to go was outside London. At that time, we were living in London. So the the, the one place that was best for her to, to do this was uh, near Bath in Somerset. And and so it was like high time that she dragged me across the country rather than me dragging us around the country yeah. over and over again. Um, so I said, talked to my lead programmer and said, uh, you know, Sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to quit. And he said, "Well, how about uh, how about you work three days at home and two days in the office every week, or, or the other way around?" And I think I'd already had the idea that maybe I was gonna start trying to do something else. Um, just getting a little bit tired of the intensity of working on games at big studios. Yeah. Um. So that and that went for a while, and then and that was that was kind of fine, but then it was also that the the structure of the team wasn't really set up for people working remotely. So you would get bug reports that say, uh, you know, come and come and look at this on my screen and I'll show you it going wrong. <laughs> it's like, well, I can't because I'm three hours trained anyway. Um, so, so I just ended up looking for another job locally. Um, and I think there was maybe just out of habit I was looking for game stuff, but then there's also this, like a non-games thing at a, uh, a, machine, a machine tools company um, which is very near like only like 15 minute drive yeah so I got that job and then it was, that was also a really nice steady nine to five job um, that was pretty low pressure and that was the thing that really let me kind of put a lot of evenings and weekends into making uh, what would become Proteus oh that's amazing that must have been incredible to have like just a job where you finish at five and go home and you're like oh my god i've got my whole evening i could do whatever yeah. i want yeah for about the same pay i mean uh that's insane but, you know, not you know you're kind of missing out on there's not going to be counter-strike uh, sessions yeah, at lunchtime in the machine tools factory <laughs> no, was, yeah, yeah um it wasn't it wasn't in a factory it was like in a software making software for a machine tools right right okay, okay okay so it's like a little room for the programmers but 
Um, but no, it didn't really have that computer games culture at all. Um, yeah, I, actually, before that, whilst I was still working part time at, at Codemasters, I was uh, not Codemasters, God, uh, Kuji. Um, I was actually not part time. Uh, when I was working remotely, back when I was still working um, part time at Codemasters, part, yeah. part remotely. <laughs> okay, sorry, uh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, back when it, so yeah, just before that, back when I was still working uh, part in the office and part at home for Kuji. Um, I started tinkering around with a few little prototypes. So I made one that was like, um, you had islands made out of hexagons and you could kind of glue them together to try and make bigger islands. And uh, so, it, and the only thing it shared with Proteus really was that it was islands, um, but it was the idea was to make some kind of weird strategy game out of that. Okay. Um, but yeah, then, and then I, I sort of got to a point with that and finished it. And I was doing that on kind of evenings. Um, and then, and then, yeah, Proteus was sometime after that where. Um, and had you been kind yeah. of itching to have, like, had you had that idea kind of bubbling away and you're like, right, this is what I'm going to do? Or was it just a case of, I'm going to set up my own company and let's figure out something we can do? Uh, I didn't even set up a company at that point. Um, yeah, you know, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I had a few friends that I was kind of collaborating with on little things and, and they all kind of petered out or like tinker around with the designs and ideas. And, and, and I did, I mean, like the first, I don't know, two and a half years of working on Proteus, um, my friend Alex did, like we, we were kind of doing um, two bits of this thing. Like he, he wanted to make a terrain renderer he just wanted to play around with this particular terrain rendering algorithm. Okay. And I play around with the terrain generator. So we're like, oh, let's make both these things. Let's put them in the same project. And then let's both use the result for two different games. Um, uh, and where did that go? Um, yeah, so that's Alex May, who who worked on Eufloria. Um, and that was kind of what he went on to doing at the time, which wasn't which wasn't a 3D thing, so it didn't make use of this landscape. Um but then I just so I just had this this landscape, and I was kind of playing around with different things to do with it, uh, like whether I was going to make a like a Zelda-ish thing where you kind of wandered about this world and did little jobs for people, yeah, um, or I, some some other sort of RPG-ish thing, um, and then I think it's one of these things where I was just realizing that. I didn't have that much free time. I mean, I had a, a decent amount of time, but I was um, I was realizing that I could simplify it, thinking like, you know, maybe this game should just be about exploration and about discovering things or about, you know, mapping out a, a land. Yeah. And then around that time, also started talking to David, um, just because I saw, like, he posted a kind of portfolio thread on a game development forum, uh, and I, um, I think I was just thinking, yeah, it'd be nice to have some music on this because it was completely silent. It'd be nice to have like some music or some sound to just kind of shed a bit of light over what it could be. Yeah, you know, kind yeah. Of give, give a kind of give, give it us an atmosphere. atmosphere. Yeah, and you know, once that happens, then you kind of think it's maybe spurs something else. Um, and then that came together really, really quickly. Like we just kind of immediately hit it off, and we're just like, oh, what if you know what if it is this game about discovering or like, you know, the music kind of unfolds as you explore. 
Um, and then we just, I don't know, carried on working it for another, working on that for another year and a bit after that. And then, and he, because he was still in uh, uh, Oregon. Okay. And then, and then he moved to Oakland. But you know, he was always on the west coast of America. Um, and then at some point, I before, well, I didn't. I had like a version of Proteus, but I tagged along with some friends to GDC. It's just that first time I've ever been there, and just like I could. I could just about justify the money for it and um, just, yeah, went along with friends and, and to just go and meet people really. And it was a really productive, um, really productive kind of thing to do. Uh, but that was the first time I met David. So we've been working out for like two years without meeting each other. Oh, amazing. Exchanging emails and, you know, me, me waking up in the morning and finding that I'd been sent a zip file of, of sounds after having like discussion the previous day. Because, because you know, the time zone's being kind of offset like that, so it's really fun. That's quite a nice way of working. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's like all like gifts. <laughs> yeah, and then you put them into the game, and then you send the build of the game back, and then yeah, you had this. It was like a nice kind of uh, pen pal kind of relationship. Oh, that's amazing. And like, how how quickly? I mean, you said you worked on it for a while. Like, what was it kind of in your head? Like, was it always going to be? here's uh, the first release from a company or was it just like i just want to make stuff and we'll see what happens with it like uh, it, did it shift at one point to being like right yeah this is right. a thing now we need to make yeah the, um it, initially it was just like i could do as a you know as a means of supporting myself um but but initially it was just what can I make? <laughs> what can I make in my free time without yeah. any external pressure? Um, and then, yeah, some point around that, like probably just after that GDC, we just started submitting it to things like Indicade and, and other competitions. Uh, and I also noticed that you know, it's Rock Paper Shotgun, which is pretty good, and still is a pretty good like champion of of indie obscure things. Um, and I noticed that Jim Jim Russell, what rock paper shotgun looks like. Oh, this looks like his kind of thing. You know, he likes kind of moody moody landscapes. Uh, so I sent him any like a specifically. I think I'd read this somewhere saying you know if you find the specific person who you think is going to be the most into your thing, send it to them and send like a a little speculative email and send them a build and and some screenshots and all that sort of stuff. So I sent him an email like a speculative thing on on a. I don't know, late Saturday night, I was just thinking, you know, obviously, you know, working up the courage to send someone an email out of the blue saying, what do, Absolutely, you, think yeah. what do you think of my weird thing that I've made? <laughs> and, and I thought, yeah, I probably won't hear anything back. But then the next day it was uh, just a, like a short little piece on rock paper shotgun. And that was, I think that was the really thing that started. Oh, that must have felt amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. And, it, you know, I've been reading that website for, for years before that probably. Um, but, but yeah, that was definitely the first thing that, you know, more people start getting interested in it and I started getting more confident with sending it to people and so it really like was a gradual build up from that um and there was a point where um so we submitted it to the the IGF the year after that I was I was there um so we submitted it to IGF 2012 and I, the first time I've been to America was at GDC IGF 2011 um and uh, yeah, so we submitted to that, and then I was talking to my girlfriend, and we, we were just saying, like, uh, you know, saying if I, I think it was it was at the point where it was seeming like it was probably a viable thing to to try and like finish off to a 
to a good standard and make a commercial thing. You know, it's like do the do the rest of the the non development work inherent in releasing a thing. Yeah. Um, and you know, s- see if it was a viable commercial thing. Um, so we we just I remember I can't remember we were, we, were, we were walking somewhere on some like chalk downland above somewhere in Wiltshire, um, and having this conversation about you know if it gets selected into IGF then you know is that can I quit my job asking her because at that point she also you know she she then had her lawyer's job so she was um, uh, you could afford to take a gamble well played well, yeah so you could take a little gamble and and we had a little bit saved up and um so yeah it was it was it was that kind of point and you know she was kind of reluctantly it's like yes you know i suppose so if it gets selected for IGF, you can quit your job so <laughs> so eventually well you know it did come through as being on the short list so uh but, you know it's a deal <laughs> job. um and then uh yeah i worked on it for about a year after that and then that was, when it was like finally properly released although it was like a beta release before that um one of my yeah. one of my favorite things about Proteus that I I wanted to ask you about is uh, right. it's such a simple thing. It's the the eye opening and closing. Oh yeah, yeah. Like right. when did that come into it? Because it's such a unique thing, and you think more games would use that in some fashion, but there's something about yeah. it that just kind of totally changes the context of what's happening. And right, it's such uh, a simple well, thing. Yeah, it, I I think I have seen a few games do that more recently, and I, I when I look at it, I think, oh, did you get that from Proteus? Um, but that where did that came about? I think that that really came about when we ha- well not we had to, but we decided that rather than it being just this island that you could wander around and you could change the seasons, but it didn't have any beginning. Well, it had a beginning, obviously you started up, but it didn't have an arc to it and it didn't have an end. Um, so I think it was when we were submitting it to Indicate twenty twelve. Um, I think a friend suggested that it middle and end and so we decided it would just be one year and it would just go through from spring summer autumn winter and then finish um so the eye was part of that i suppose it's like just a way of uh part of that like building out a frame around the game rather than it just being this completely uh like unstructured freeform yeah wandering. it was like what if it is wandering but it has a little bit of a frame and it has a little bit of a like a sense of going through different kind of chapters um it's really good it's a really good little it, it, it's a, such a tiny thing that does so much to the game i think i think it's a, it's a really neat thing well thanks and i, I suppose it's, it's like you know is it is it you know i don't know really it's like a dreamlike kind of thing absolutely yeah yeah, I don't really have like a good, <laughs> kind of, like a definitive explanation, but it's just gem- yeah, it's like generally meant to evoke that sense of look, you know, looking first looking upon another world or it being a kind of dreamlike atmosphere. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so during this like whole period when you're um building the game and just starting to release stuff, like, are, are you still playing a lot of games? Like, are there any games from that that kind of period that stand out to you? Um, must run like mentally figure out the chronology um i definitely was still playing games like was uh, there like a palette cleanser you would go to after working on the game or like your, your treat for finishing a couple of hours or a <laughs> right, couple of right. lines of code or something uh oh, i find it really hard to place what what games were around at the time um hmm, maybe something will come to me 
that's fine no i mean it is like okay. it, it is tricky to like i think as soon as you get past like 25 it yeah. just it's just it's just one year then and it just <laughs> right. the weather changes but it's really just one that's big it. long year and then you find yourself in a care home yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah no absolutely um so so what about like like since previous like what are you what are you working on now what sort of games are you playing uh, uh the thing that i'm working on which i'm taking a little break from or a little or maybe i need to sort of enforce this break more strictly but i'm working on a, a game called forest of sleep with um so the main other collaborator on that is a guy called nikolai trashinsky who's uh in madrid but it's a uh it's a russian folktale themed procedure generated storytelling game um with a kind of a sort of like mid 20th century handmade picture book style it's beautiful um, like the, the the little screenshots and, and animated gifs and stuff are amazing it looks really good yeah thanks i mean that's you know that's 99 percent nicola's <laughs> visual visual skills there um so where did that come from like where because where, that seems like I'm, I'm always fascinated like because i'm a writer like i love stories and i'm always really interested in how the relationship between stories and games and how you yeah, frame that and, and for me it's like it's 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 never been a thing like i don't go to games for story and i always find it's quite a it's quite a difficult relationship so so how how are you kind of approaching it um with with difficulty i mean um, it does sound like a really interesting approach to take yeah i, I think so it's not yeah there's there's a bunch of odd little factors at play i think which is also when you when you talk about procedural story generation um there's some people kind of immediately jump on that and say and either say either with horror or with glee uh that we're trying to replace human storytellers like human writers yeah um you know some people that say oh i've been looking for this to generate infinite amounts of soap opera (laughs) or or you know some people are, are kind of saying oh you know i prefer hand handwritten st- like human made stories and that and that, and that kind of spins off into this whole thing about ai and computational creativity and generative stuff and you know who's you know what 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 does it mean for something to have been generated by a computer but but i guess what we're trying to do with this and and we've been trying lots of different ways and still really working on finding one that i'm really happy with is to make kind of a in, in the same way that a lot of games are, to make a space where you can, where stories can happen, and where you feel like you've you're kind of influencing that story, like if you're like yeah. trying to derail it, but then the game is trying to kind of still trying to like curate that into a structured story experience, and it's never going to be the same as um, as a human makes something, making you know as a as a as a handmade story, um, which. And this both plays into the fact that it's generative and we're trying to make a computer kind of generate stories. Yeah. And the fact that stories and games are like one of the reasons that's difficult is obviously because of the way the player interacts with them and the way that, you know, either the player wants to derail the story, but they can't, or they want to tell their own story and, and they're kind of bumping against the walls of, of what's. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's, that's the biggest thing is that if, as soon as you put yourself as, you know um a, an object in the world then the story is inevitably going to be about you kind of regardless of whatever else is happening like i, I think the, yeah, the, the story yeah. you leave with is I, I i did this in this game and in this world with these people and 
you know you're you're telling your own stories right and there's a lot of different points on that spectrum like there's uh, kentucky route zero is a really beautiful example of um telling a very linear story um with with kind of branching and odd things going on that that i don't think it ever really makes clear when you play it um but but apparently it does track a huge amount of stuff um but that has this thing of you're kind of choosing how to color the characters and choosing yeah. how to almost but you're still on the same story and the, and the way it frames that is is so nice that you never feel well i never felt that that was a restriction it's just that you, you know you have it's kind of the way it frames your agency is is beautiful and and the actual thing itself is is an incredibly beautiful piece of work as well um and then there's at the other end of the spectrum there's things like um i mean i would say dwarf fortress but everyone says dwarf fortress and i've only played a tiny bit of dwarf fortress but um what's the better one i mean stellaris is a good example actually okay. stellaris has this uh, has a mix of things going on. Like it has little uh, pre-written story snippets that are quite often chains of events that like the first thing will happen and then you'll you'll make some choice and then another part of that will happen and, and you'll think it's over. And it'll be to do with like discovering a life form on a planet or mm-hmm. a weird signal coming from a black hole or something. And this is all happening with the context of like a, a 4X um, empire management kind of game where you, you, you kind of create this custom alien empire and um meet other empires and decide if you're gonna yeah that sounds brilliant i need to it's related to so paradox also made uh, crusader kings oh okay yeah which is which i've never managed to get into like it's the game that i always load it up and it's it's not even you know there's like a it gives you the screen you choose your kingdom and uh and i always choose island because i hear that islands are good you know one of the kingdoms islands is good good to good beginners thing but then i i barely get to the point of unpausing it before i'm just utterly defeated by yeah it. <laughs> but, it's one of those games like eve where i love hearing people talking about it and relating their stories right. but i i find it impenetrable yeah totally i think stellaris is kind of like that but it's obviously a completely different setting and it's yeah. you're not playing a dynasty you're playing an empire uh but it's it's very similar and it has a lot of it's 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 kind of there it's like crusader kings in space or something and you know they take like a lot of the the framework of it is very similar um, but it has things like tech trees and uh, yeah, it's very, very good. Um, and that, you know, lots of good stories coming out of that. Um, but yeah, some of the stories are, some of the stories are pre-written chunks. Some of the stories are just like what happens when you, you know, you start off friends with the, another arrival and then they become a little bit too powerful and, or, or you know, or you be- become too powerful and there becomes some friction and then yeah. relationship changes and you, you get these little like, kind of arcs happening. Um, and then there's also things like stories that you kind of emerge by the fact that you're given this set of um, the set of kind of semi randomly combined props. Like you can be, uh, I think one one game I was uh, these authoritarian uh, pacifist cats um, that. Oh, they were like authoritarian spiritualist cats, I think. Uh, and the cat thing didn't make much difference. That's just the visual of the leader of these kind of like uh, anthropomorphic cats. Okay. Um, but just the fact that, that they were they were both uh, sort of fanatical pacifist spiritualists, and the kind of relationships that that had with their neighbours, who were maybe like materialists or like you know fanatical scientists, or they were uh democratic crusaders which who who kind of really 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 hated my civilization because they weren't democratic 
but the, but my civilization was kind of this beautiful uh, pacifist utopia <laughs> you know, where everyone had really good living standards. That's um, really clever, though. Like, and, and does it just procedurally kind of combine those elements? Like, they just play off each other. Like, yeah, is a lot of that inferred by the player as well? Do you think? Uh, yeah, I guess that's where I was going. Was it's kind of inferred that you kind of have a picture of what's going on. Like, okay, it okay, okay. It doesn't model everything else, but it, but it definitely does have this mechanical sense of. Uh, you know, a spiritual civilization gets a certain bonus to something, and a materialist bon- civilization gets a bonus to research speed or something. And if there's an AI who's materialist, they will they will dislike you for being spiritualist, and they'll they'll and there's uh, the writing in that game is really good as well. Like the the dim- diplomatic communications about like what civilizations say to you if they're if you know if you're if you're one way and they they disagree with you in a certain way, they'll kind of give you some really like barbed greeting about like you know, isn't it a shame you're such deluded fools? You know, that's, that's a terrible thing. But I mean, they're just very, very neatly written, pithy things about, like, yeah, angry tweets from across throwing, the yeah. Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get a bit of that too. Um, but yeah, just throwing shade in subtle ways that's, that, uh, at your civilization. So how are you approaching it then? Like, how are you, like, were all these factors playing a part in you wanting to pursue this kind of a game? Yeah, I, I think it, came originally from uh i think the game it it sort of originally came from was ftl which is a okay nice, uh, you know it's like spaceship roguelike thing and that has um that's a you know linear roguelike with um uh combat encounters and other things and so originally i think i was thinking of making a game where you're kind of wandering around in a forest or between some valleys and having little encounters with people and then it, it it's kind of changed between the various people working on it. It's changed to be, um, I guess, more focused around trying to tell a, a structured story. Because um, uh, I mean, Hannah Nicklin, who you, you talked to recently, mm-hmm. um, she was also working on it um, before we ran out of money. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's kind of back to very low skeleton staff kind of thing. Um, but yeah, we were having these big conversations about you know how much how much do you try and structure the experience? Like how much do you make it out of, out of um, kind of pre-authored chunks and how much do you uh, try and, th- th- there's a kind of simulationist approach and there's a plot centric approach where the simulationist one is more like, um, I mean, to use the kind of go-to thing, it's more like draw forge or something where you just have rules which with which things interact. And then the other one, the other approach is more trying to, create that kind of classic story arc um and that seems like a hell of a challenge to try and mesh those two things (laughs) we haven't solved it yet i don't think um uh, but i think we've we've made a lot of headway on ways that we might be able to do that um but we're definitely trying to make something stupidly difficult it's it's very exciting like just purely based on this of the ideas you're you're working on it sounds it sounds incredible like it sounds incredible okay so but but during this same period then like what have you been playing what has been kind of stoking your imaginations or just providing comfort uh yeah well i mean stellaris is definitely one of them um uh what else i've been playing uh i just played what remains of edith finch which is another kind of how did you like it? Uh, yeah, I liked it quite a lot. Um, 
very Wes Anderson-y, um, which I quite like. Uh, yeah, it was it was odd. I think I, I almost like, I feel like I like the memory of it more than, because whilst I was playing it, I think I had kind of, I don't know, I had weird expectations or sort of high expectations or something. And then, so, because I think I missed most of the, the spoilers around the kind of discussions around it. But Okay. Um, so you kind of maybe expected something slightly different to what you got? I don't know. I think I just didn't know what to expect. But I think it's one of those things where you're kind of playing something. It's like, come on, impress me. Come on. Come yeah, on. yeah, yeah. So I didn't really, you know, it's not that I didn't think I expected something different. It's just more just that sort of going into it with a kind of looking askance at it. <laughs> <laughs> what about just for like, like just for, for not just for fun. That sounds, that sounds but obviously most games you play play for fun but like are there games that you kind of purposefully seek out as kind of a, like as, as a way of zoning out or you know just comfort like a warm blanket or something yeah well i, mean, I feel like I, I keep repeating Solaris now but i mean that's i guess that's on my mind um but that that's very uh i think once i you know once i figured out how not to kind of fail early on in that game um it's a very comforting game um just kind of gently expanding through the galaxy and discovering stuff and uh occasionally having little wars but i think um, you might have a problem with with solaris Ed. <laughs> i think this is something we've discovered I, I think i've i've fortunately kind of played myself out on it um at least until the next update comes out so <laughs> it's one of those things where you can you can play like three three playthroughs and um but yeah, definitely some weekends I'll just lose the entire weekend just to playing Stellaris and then realize I haven't done anything else. Um, Are you still like as excited about games now as you as you were when you were younger? Do you still like? Do you still have that kind of same enthusiasm? Yeah, I think it's always different, isn't it? Like the, I mean, you, you know, the, just the nature of enthusiasm changes. Like you become more. Well, certainly also. I mean, like that's also just kind of maturity and also. Yeah making things but you know you become enthusiastic or cynical about trends in a different way um yeah I, uh again i'm not convinced that you are enthusiastic <laughs> or excited <laughs> yeah I mean, that's because my project is dragging on and and it's not really clear where that's going <laughs> so um yeah I, I definitely have this kind of mixed thing at the moment where I play games like like Stellaris or like other games where I'm just I kind of starting to get this feeling where I play stuff and oh this is brilliant this is much better than anything I would ever make. So, oh, but that's like everybody uh, who makes things thinks that about everything. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm thinking at the moment is like maybe I should take a bit of a longer break from this current project and work on something some completely different side project thing, um, of which I've got one that's kind of taking, like kicking around. Okay. Uh, which I mean, the only thing I'll say about it is that it's kind of uh, sort of vaguely a gardening game because my girlfriend, you know, uh, like you're kind of hearing her story arc as well. But she she retrained around the time when or it was like just after Proteus released, she took a break from being a lawyer and and then subsequently retrained as a gardener and a horticulturist. So that's what she does now. Oh, amazing. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, apart from days like this where it's checking it down, but 
she'll come back frozen like a block of ice and kind of shivering into the door and just desperately seeking some warmth. But, um, but yeah, so I'm kind of making, you know, I was kind of saying to her, you know, what, what game would you want me to make? Uh, and just thinking like, you know, what's a good way of staying motivated is to try and make something for, uh, you know, for your partner. Who you That's a nice idea. So I, yeah, I'll probably go back to doing that and refocus that a little bit just, just for a break and just to kind of get that sense of making a smaller thing. Um, I wish there were, I was, I was just going to sort of wrap up there, but that seems like a sad place to end. <laughs> <laughs> As our eyes close, soggy and sad. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, as, as we drift up slowly away from the landscape and uh, above the clouds. <laughs> but I, I, I genuinely, I, I do think we've covered all sorts of stuff. But it, like, if there's anything that hasn't come up that you wanted to mention, like, please take this opportunity now, or just tell people where they can find your stuff online. Uh, well, twisted tree games dot com and uh, it's at twisted tree on Twitter. But both those are a little bit quiet at the moment. Um. Yeah, nothing else. <laughs> Why? Okay, I'll, I'm going to try. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, determined to end on a, on a high note. Where does I, I don't know if this will be the correct question to ask to get that, but where does Twisted Tree come from? Oh, uh, so that comes from uh, yeah, you know, the, you know, I was talking about the chocolate biscuit tree earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's basically not. I, don't, I can't remember if it's that specific tree, but it's kind of that sort of tree, which is a an old gnarled hawthorn tree growing on a fell side. Um, and and they, they tend to be these really kind of weird windblown shapes okay um, so it's just a kind of indigenous local thing that i mean no you know it's not they're one of these things that's not i don't think they're generally considered to be a special thing to anyone anyone else did you never um, consider chocolate biscuit tree <laughs> yeah maybe that's the new <laughs> version with more uh, that's the I don't know free to play label or something. Yeah, you could, that um, could be a side project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, go, I'll, go, I'll go and open up Unity and make that game. Um, <laughs> well, that's a nice place to end. Then Ed, was that okay for you? Was that was that pleasurable? Yes. Yeah. Good.